Attention people who still care. How can regular people like us earn money by making the world a better place to live in? This is the question we ask on the Crowd Effect podcast. I am your host, Paul Lovejoy, activist investment advisor at Stakeholder Enterprise. On today's show, the fallout from Silicon Valley and First Republic Bank's collapse continues with new regulations. Will this new policy solve the problems or just create new ones? But, but before we get into that, I first want to tell a story. Around 4,000 years ago, in the bustling city of Babylon, now which is modern-day Iraq, lived a merchant named Nergal. Now, he was known for his smooth talking and his talent for acquiring vast amounts of grain. His business thrived, and he had built a reputation as an honest and trustworthy trader. One day, Negral found himself in dire need of funds to expand his enterprises. He approached a respected moneylender, Enlil. Now, he requested a loan of a hundred measures of grain from him. Enlil, aware of Nergal's success, saw this as a lucrative opportunity and agreed to lend him the requested amount. The two men drew up a contract, carefully inscribing the terms on a clay tablet known as a cuneiform script. It detailed the amount of grain borrowed and the agreed upon date for repayment. Nergal, seizing the opportunity, hatched a plan that would leave Enlil none the wiser. As the day of repayment approached, Nergal visited the local scribe and inquired about a stylus, a tool used for writing on clay tablets. The scribe explained its various uses and handed Nergal a stylus of the finest quality. On the agreed upon day, Enlil eagerly awaited Nergal's arrival. Nergal approached, carrying a basket filled with the hundred measures of grain. As the two men stood before the tablet, Nergal requested permission to use his newly acquired stylus to inscribe the repayment on the tablet. Unaware of Nergal's intentions, Enlil agreed, believing that he was witnessing an act of transparency and honesty. Little did he know that this was the very instrument Nergal planned to use to swindle him. With deft hands and a sly smile, Nergal began altering the cuneiform script. He skillfully manipulated the markings, subtly reducing the amount of grain owed. Each stroke of the stylets concealed his deceit, erasing evidence of his trickery. Once he finished, Negral handed the cuneiform back to the scribe and presented the tablet to Enlil. The moneylender, unsuspecting, examined the markings briefly and nodded in approval. The debt appeared to be settled. Days turned into weeks, and Enlil's trust in Nergal integrity remained unshaken. However, rumors soon began to circulate about Nergal's cunning scheme. Whispers of the Mesopotamian stylus swindle reached the ears of other merchants and moneylenders, and doubts began to grow. One evening, Enlil invited Nergal to a lavish banquet. 
As the wine flowed and the merriment filled the air, Enlil confronted Nergal about the rumors. Nergal's face flushed with surprise and feigned innocence. He denied any involvement in such nefarious activities, claiming the rumors were born out of jealousy and ill will. Enlil, torn between his faith in Nergal and the weight of the accusations, devised a plan to expose the truth. He discreetly reached out to an independent scribe renowned for his keen eye and unwavering integrity. The scribe arrived and the tablet was laid before him. His gaze traveled over the cuneiform script, scrutinizing every detail. With each stroke of his own stylus, he carefully compared the markings to the original. As the scribe completed his examination, a grave silence descended upon the room. His verdict would determine Nergal's fate. With a solemn expression, he announced that the tablet had indeed been altered. Nergal's treachery had been exposed. Now, this story is a work of fiction. However, the Mesopotamian stylus swindle was, in fact, the world's first recorded banking fraud. That was a real thing. You know, I, I do find it interesting that the merchant, not the moneylender, was the perpetrator of this crime. It appears that banks have learned their lessons early on and have been on the offensive ever since, which leads us into our main news story of the day. The Office of the Comptroller of the Currency, or the OCC, has announced that it is transitioning to a new set of guidelines for national banks and federal savings associations and the updated policy is supposed to provide greater transparency and clarity about how the OCC determines if a bank has persistent weakness and the possible additional actions the agency may take to address them. The policy is focused on larger and more complex banks the OCC supervises. The appendix per defines persistent weaknesses as significant mental weaknesses in a bank's risk management, internal controls, or governance that have not been corrected after a reasonable period of time. The appendix also identifies a number of factors that the OCC will consider in determining whether a bank has persistent weakness, including the nature and severity of the weakness, the bank's history and corrective action, the bank's size and complexity, the potential impact of the weakness on the bank's safety and soundness. If the OCC determines that a bank has persistent weakness, the agency may take a number of actions, including requiring the bank to improve its capital or liquidity position, meaning uh, not being able, not having to invest all their, their money, but you have to keep it in their bank, uh, imposing restrictions on the bank's growth, business activities, or payments of dividends, requiring the bank to simplify or reduce its operations, requiring the bank to replace its board of directors or senior management, and taking enforcement action against the bank, such as a cease and desist order or a civil money penalty. The OCC has said that it will closely monitor the implementation of the new guidelines and make adjustments as needed. 
The agency says it's committed to ensuring that the national banking system is safe and sound and that banks are able to provide essential financial services to consumers and businesses. Now, these new OCC guidelines have been met with criticism. And mainly, is this just this definition of persistent weakness and how it's very broad. And it could be interpreted in a number of ways. Now, this worst case scenario, this could lead the OCC taking enforcement action against banks for political reasons rather than legitimate safety and soundness concerns. Uh, these, this policy could discourage innovation. And because of these guidelines not providing clear guidance on what constitutes significant material weakness. As a result, banks may be reluctant to take risks, even if those risks could lead to new products and services that benefit consumers. One thing I'm almost certain will happen, it will increase the costs for banks. The guidelines require banks to have robust risk management in internal controls and government systems. And these systems are expensive to implement and maintain. So it, it really remains uh, to be seen how the OCC will implement the new guidelines and whether they will have the desired effect of improving the safety and soundness of the national banking system. Now, I have no idea what these new regulations will do to our financial system. But I do know this, that this change in policy won't address the root problem, which is this, the way publicly traded banks are designed. They're designed to constantly increase their quarterly profits. And because of this, this way that they're designed, it creates this pressure for the employees and the uh, members of the board of directors, the CEO, the executive team to have this, this constant pressure of always increasing their quarterly profits. And when you have this pressure, it will inevitably lead to unethical behaviors and abuse and fraud and you name it. So it's not that our laws or regulations need to change, it's our own behavior. And instead of constantly regulating uh, new uh, these banks, we can be the change, which leads me to our financial tip of the day. Two things, stop banking at publicly traded banks. Instead, bank at a community credit union. Credit unions are nonprofit and they do not have this pressure. They are designed differently. Any money that is made above their expenses, remember they don't have profit, but the, their net revenues, well, it gets pumped right back into the credit union, which leads to better services like financial education, uh, lower interest rates, and less fees when you go into the bank. You know, I went into the bank, uh, my credit union recently to get this medallion signature, and it was free. I, but prior to that, uh, at, a, at a regular bank, Wells Fargo, 
well, you know, this was some years ago, but you know, I had to pay like $15 to, to get this medallion signature. So, so credit unions, they're just better for the community. Uh, on top of that, it's, it's a decentralized approach to banking. Uh, right now, four banks control half of all the banking assets in the United States. Uh, the banks, number one, Chase, Bank of America, Wells Fargo, and Citigroup. Now, these four banks are the most abusive companies in the United States. According to the Violation Tracker Project, the most heavily fined and uh, noted corporation that operates in the United States that has the, the, the most amount of fines is Chase Bank. Number two, no, excuse me, is Bank of America. Chase is number two, Wells Fargo is number five, and Citigroup is number six. So here we have all, all the, the, we're regulating and regulated and more regulations and more regulations. And does the abuse stop? No, it will never stop because this constant pressure to increase their quarterly profits will never go away because it's the way these banks are designed in the first place. So that's number one. Uh, bank at a credit union, it, you'll be better off. You get way better services. It's it's no comparison um, uh, to, to bank with a, a credit union. That's number one. Number two, become a crowd investor. Uh, within the world of crowd investing, there is something called crowd lending. This is when a large group of people pool small amounts of money to fund a loan. So uh, in, instead of a large bank dictating who gets loans and, and who doesn't, well, the masses now can say, hey, this we, we should all get loans. And not only are, are the masses the ones deciding who gets funded and who doesn't, but we get to profit from it. It, it, it decentralizes the wealth and the power of the banks and redistributes that wealth and power back to us regular people. Uh, this is why I am so passionate about crowd investing. It, it, it allows us to a system to change our own behavior, uh, a, a, a way where we're not, we don't, I don't have this constant pressure to increase my quarterly profits. I do uh, have pressure to, uh, you know, provide for my family. I have pressure to uh, save up for retirement, to have extra income for uh, unexpected expenses. But all of that can be easily achieved through crowd lending, uh, and, uh, along with other uh, crowd investing uh, asset classes like equity crowdfunding and real estate crowdfunding. Uh, and so it, when you have uh, these new systems in place that, that involves the masses, you know, I'm not re relying my retirement on uh, a 401k that invests in these these publicly traded banks because that's what all, all of our retirement accounts are, are doing right now we're investing in the problem not the solution by becoming a crowd investor you are investing in the solution which will have long-term positive effects not just for uh your your life and your family but but for future generations so my name is Paul Lovejoy. I am a crowd investor, and I see you are one too.